Well, perhaps you've heard it said that the word Easter is a pagan word. I've had people try to convince me that the word Easter is a pagan word. And I want you to know this morning that it is not, in fact, pagan. And I can tell you the history or the etymology of it. I know you were hoping for this this morning. And so you're in luck. <laughs> so it actually it's, it's an old Anglo-Saxon word with German influence. And the German word is, is Oster, which means East, and it, it's kind of an idiom in German for resurrection. As the sun rises in the east, there's new life. And so Oster speaks of east or, or uh, resurrection, newness. In fact, in uh, German to this very day, the word for, Pass, for Passover feast is Osterfest. And I like in German, you can just add the word fest at the end of everything and it makes it a party, you know. <laughs> Passover feast is Osterfest or Passover lamb is Osterlamb. And they stole that from English, by the way. Lamb is an English word. I declare it. Oster lamb, Passover lamb. Well, Wycliffe, who did the first English translation of the Bible, 1380s, he used that word to translate Passover. So in the uh, New Testament, when Jesus went to Jerusalem for the feast, our translations would say feast of the Passover. Wycliffe rendered it to the Easter feast, using that kind of idea of a resurrection or a new life and tying it to Passover. Uh, when Tyndale translated the Bible in English 150 years later, early 1500s, he ditched the word Easter and replaced it with the word that exists in every English Bible today, which is Passover. Tyndale, it, it bothered him that there was any kind of distance between the reading of God's word and what it meant. So he did not like the idea of uh, Easter in the Bible. He liked it better as Passover because it was more clear. The Church of England, however, did not go along with Tyndale's change. If you remember, the Church of England was not a big Tyndale fan in general. Um, they tied him to a pile of dynamite and blew him up. Is how his story ended. Um, but they also rejected his use of Passover and they changed it back to Easter, which is why to this very day, your Bibles all say Passover, but we celebrate Easter because we're following the kind of liturgical holiday sanctioned by the Church of England. Now, you are not going to be expected to know that at any point in your life, Okay. You won't be quizzed on the etymology of Easter versus Passover or anything like that. You're not responsible for it. So if that did interest you, highlight, delete, and we'll start over. Except for this. <laughs> you will be held responsible when you die for your own sin. When you stand before God, he will not ask you where Easter comes from, but he will ask you what happened on that first Easter morning. And he will ask you how you are going to atone for your sin. How can you get into heaven when you die? You cannot rely on good works. You cannot rely on your own effort or charm. You have sin and you will be held accountable for that sin. Now, the Bible teaches that Jesus paid for people's sin and validated that payment by rising from the grave on that first Easter morning. And so while you will not be responsible for the Germanic origins of the word Easter, you are responsible for what you do with the resurrected Jesus Christ in that empty grave. Even today, get on a plane, fly to Israel, stand in a line in Jerusalem, and it is a long line to get into the grave of Jesus. And you will see that it is, in fact, empty. In fact, the last time I was in Jerusalem, our tour guide looked at the line and saw how long it was and looked at our group and said, you sure you want to wait in this? You're going to stand in a long line. And you're going to look into a room and the point is that there's nothing in there. <laughs> All right, we'll move, on. we'll move along. This is the celebration of Paul in Ephesians 4 verses 9 and 10. He writes this. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so we looked at this a little bit last week when Paul says in saying he ascended and it's in quotes there, he ascended. He's quoting himself from last week, verse eight. That's a quote from Psalm 68. We won't retread that ground because we spent all last Sunday on it. Except to say this, Psalm 68 is a celebration of God who rides into the world, rides across the Egyptian desert, rides in through Israel and rides up the temple stairs to the temple and ascends right on up into glory again. That's the celebration of Jesus Christ entering Jerusalem, revealing himself as a savior and ascending back to glory. That's why Paul is using that verse. So Jesus came to earth, conquered this earth, ascended back up to heaven. And so Paul says he ascended and then he does something interesting with the word ascended. What does that possibly mean except that he had also descended into the earth? And Paul speaks of this as if it's like axiomatic. If Jesus descended, or if Jesus ascended, obviously he would have had to first descend. Now tease out his logic here a little bit. If Jesus is the highest being in the world, the highest person in the world, if he is exalted, if he is the name above every name, if he's from the very highest of heavens, the top of the world, and then the Bible says he ascended, what could it possibly mean that he ascended? You can't get any higher than the tippity top. If he is the name above every name, where else could he go? It's like if you hear a set of a sports team that oh, they, they rebounded or they bounced back. Well, that means they must have lost because how else could they bounce back? If you're undefeated, you can't really improve your record. You know what I mean? So how can Jesus ascend unless he first created space? Unless he first descended, or let me put it a, a different way. You could ask, hey, how was your vacation? And I would say, you know, our family's vacation, it really started when we landed in Albuquerque. We went to Albuquerque, let's pretend. We re it really started when we landed in Albuquerque. Well, you wouldn't interrupt and say, whoa, 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 you can't start the story there. I mean, did you take off first? <laughs> well, obviously we took off. If your story says we landed, that implies that earlier you must have taken off. Although you're not perpetually in flight. <laughs> Of course, if you say you landed, you'd earlier taken off. That's Paul's logic here, reversed for Jesus. If Jesus ascended, well, then obviously he first had to descend. He had to go down in order for him to have anywhere to ascend up to. It's obvious, he says. And so I want to look at Paul's course here that he charts for Jesus in these two verses, verses 9 and 10. He describes a round trip from glory down and down and then up and up back to glory again. Jesus goes on a round trip here. He starts in the highest of heavens. He ends in the highest of heavens. That's the phrase from verse 10. Far above all the heavens. That's where he starts. And that's where this journey ends. Jesus's round trip here has four segments. So you know how you might fly. If you flew round trip to Australia, it would probably have four flights from here. You'd probably go here. It's like LA, change planes Australia, back to LA, back here again, round trip, four flights. Jesus follows the same kind of flight plan here from the highest of heavens, down, down, up and up. And let's look at those four segments as we go through this verse this morning. First, Jesus goes from heaven to earth, from heaven to earth. What does it possibly mean, verse nine says, he ascended unless he first descended down to the earth. What Paul is saying here is that for Jesus to ascend, he must first have come down to us. Now, this concept of descent here is a, a very profound concept that we often limit in our own thinking. Do you understand the gap of what Jesus set aside from coming from heaven to earth? In heaven, he had all knowledge. 
In heaven, he had all glory. In heaven, he had all power. On earth, he limited himself. Now, he did not limit himself by setting aside his divinity. He limited himself by adding to his nature. He added a second nature. He had his divinity and he added humanity to it. He is the eternal son of God. He's always been glorious. He's always been exalted in heaven. As long as there has been an eternal father, there has been an eternal son. He has no beginning. He has no ends. He is equal to the father in majesty and glory and power and authority and all of his attributes. He fully shares with the father that are one being, but he is the eternal son of God. And when he comes to earth, He limits all of that glory and all of that beauty by robing it in a human nature, by constraining himself. And it's perhaps easiest to think through it in a few different terms. In heaven, he is the object of worship. The angels are worshiping him and he is commanding them and they go to and fro and they bring him worship. On earth, he's not the object of worship. On earth, he is a worshiper. And the angels have to bring him, you know, water and they have to minister to him on earth, whereas they were giving him worship in heaven. Or in his deity, in his divinity, Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. But in his humanity, he has to learn how to talk. You know, ask yourself this question. Did Jesus know English? I mean, the English hadn't been invented during Jesus's earthly life. Nobody knew English then. And, but certainly in his deity, Jesus being omniscient knows English. He's the word of God. He knows all languages. And so, yes, he knows English in his deity, but he limits that in his humanity. He becomes one who has to learn how to talk and to walk and have to be fed and all of these kind of things. He goes from being in the immediate presence of the father to becoming one who has to pray to the father. And this is the descent of Jesus. You know, in school, you go up in grades first, second, third, fourth, you know, until you graduate. Jesus goes from being the graduate back down to pre-K here. He's going down to earth, stepping out of the glories of heaven. He didn't go to a powerful nation. He went to occupied Israel. Israel didn't even have its own independence during Jesus's life. They were occupied by Rome. That's his descent. He didn't go to a powerful family, but to an anonymous family. He didn't go to a powerful city, but to a nowheresville up in Nazareth, which is Back in Jesus' life, tiny, most remote place you could imagine. He didn't go to Judah, but to Naphtali. He went to the most remote part of the most isolated country. I mean, he went down, down, down. If the riches of a king is seen in the devotion of his subjects, you see this with Jesus. In heaven, the angels served him every which way. He comes to earth and he's traded the angels for 12 disciples, one of which is a traitor and 11 of which are slacker loser villains, honestly. I mean, this is a step down from glory. You might have heard the expression, there's no such thing as an unhappy dog. That might be more of a West Coast expression than out here. And what that expression means is that, you know, a dog is happy in its yard and in its house. It doesn't, the dog is not jealous of some bigger yard somewhere. You know, if you live in an apartment and you have a dog and the dog only knows the apartment and the patio, the dog is totally stoked with the apartment and the patio. The dog's not jealous of the bigger yard across the street your friend has. The dog doesn't know or care. And if you hear that expression, no such thing as a happy dog, and you think, yeah, but I once saw an unhappy dog. Missing the points. <laughs> the point is that you're happy with what you have because that's all you know. And we're like that, aren't we? You know, I remember my first car was this little Honda Accord stick shift thing that I, I loved when I finally sold it. It was probably worth 500 bucks or something. This thing was just 
it's a miracle that thing moved. And I was so excited to have this car. And then I got like an, a Mazda 6 that I loved so bad. And, you know, that thing was looking back on it, a piece of junk. I mean, when I was done with it, I got a call from the New Mexico Highway Patrol. It had been found abandoned on the side of the road. I mean, that's the quality. Whoever took that car next just left it. You know, it was worth buying for a drive and then just leaving it there. And every car you get is nicer than the one before and you're happier with it. You don't want to go back. And the car that you love right now, the best car you ever had, your neighbor might look at that car and go, I could never drive that thing. Yikes. And you love it because you don't know any better. Now, people are like that. We're happy being people because we don't know any better. We don't have anything to compare it to. So we're kind of happy. Do you understand that Jesus knew better? When he steps down from heaven to earth, he chooses to limit himself by taking on a human nature. It's hard for us to understand how that's limiting because we don't know anything different. But for Jesus, that is hugely constricting. It's very difficult for us to comprehend the gap between humanity and deity. But Jesus not only understood it, but then transcends it and takes on the lower nature. This is what the Bible means when it says he, became, he came to earth, setting aside the equality that he had with God, not grasping it, but taking on the form of not just a human, but a servant and a slave all the way to the point of death. The Bible uses all kinds of phrases for this. He emptied himself. He nullified himself. He made himself of no account. He became poor in 2 Corinthians 8. This doesn't, again, mean that he ceased to be God. Of course, he possesses divine nature at all times, but he chose to operate in his humanity. This is the descent of Jesus Christ. And you see it perhaps most blaringly on the cross. On the cross, because that's where he was utterly abandoned. And where did his friends go even? At the cross, they fled. The father whom he once had rich fellowship in heaven with, the father has turned his face away. Where's his riches? I mean, he asked for wine and he's given rotten vinegar. He says, why have you forsaken me to the father? The one who is so generous in wealth, so eager to share himself, creating us in his image from his kind benevolence, creating the whole universe. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he shares them with us. That's how benevolent and giving our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. And yet he comes to earth at the bottom of society's totem pole, lifted up on a pole and crucified and really betrayed an act of horrible injustice. He was murdered for all intents and purposes, but that's not even the most degradating part of his death. He was stripped naked. He was humiliated by the ironic sign above his head, the crown of thorns put on his, on his own head. But that's not even the worst part of his death. The worst part of his death is that he took our sin from us and that he who knew no sin became sin. He who had never sinned in his life, of course, he never failed to do the right thing. He never did the wrong thing. He led the perfect life. The perfect person then takes on our sin. I mean, there's nothing worse for a holy person than being labeled a sinner. If you love holiness, you hate sin. And Jesus, the holiest one who ever lived, became the most sinful person who ever lived as our sin was imputed to him. It was legally transferred. It was actually in a real way. This is not legal fiction here. God actually transferred our guilt to Jesus. So at that moment on the cross, he stands condemned, rightfully condemned by God. It was obviously a murder and a miscarriage of justice by human standards at the human court level. But from the triune God's plan was to impute our sins to Christ. That's what I mean by descent. Do you see how far down he stepped from the glories of heaven to earth and ultimately to the cross? The one who is the, 
who clothes the grass of the field and the lilies in their splendor became despised and forsaken of men. The child and the bright morning star of heaven became the one to whom men would hide their faces and they would esteem him not. The worshiped one became despised. The man exalted in the heavens became the man of sorrow. The master became the slave. The rich became poor. This is the descent of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. And this is not where the descent ends. This is only the first leg of his descent from heaven to earth. The second leg of his descent is from the earth to under the earth. He really died on that cross and his body went into the grave and his soul went to Sheol, the realm of the dead. This is what is meant here in verse 9 when it says, in his saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth is what my translation says. Yours might say the lower regions of the earth or the under parts of the earth or the region under the earth. There's all kinds of different ways to render it. What it means literally in the Greek is that to the, the, the realm, the sphere of earth under the earth, the very lowest part of the earth, he went underneath. This is what the Old Testament refers to Sheol, the realm of the dead. In the Old Testament, when you, before the death of Christ, when you died, your soul went down. The righteous and the unrighteous, they both went down. When you look at death in the Old Testament, it's always spoken of in terms of down. David and the patriarchs, they, they died, their soul went down to Sheol. The Old Testament describes Sheol for the righteous as a land of rest. Job chapter 3 says that he wishes he would have, have died and gone to the place of rest. So the righteous who die go to Sheol. Babies who die go to Sheol and they rest there. They wait. The suffering of this world is taken away from them. It is a happy place, a place of rest and expectation. The righteous and the, the infants who died in the Old Testament are longing, waiting for the unveiling of their Savior. That's what Job says later on. He says, I know my Redeemer lives, and in the end, I will resurrect, and I will see him in the flesh on the earth. So in the Old Testament, when the righteous died, they went down where they rested from their work. They, rest, they rested, and they looked eagerly forward to seeing their Savior. The unrighteous died in the Old Testament. They also went down. And they went down to a place of suffering and torment. Isaiah 66 describes it as a place where the worm never ends, where the fire is never quenched. Jesus describes it as a land of torment and pain. The unrighteous who die go to a place of suffering, also called Sheol. So both the righteous and the unrighteous go to the grave. Psalm 63 verse 9 calls it the depths of the earth. Psalm 139 verse 8, David says, If I go up to heaven, look, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there, speaking to God. The point of this is that you can't get away from God. You go up to heaven, guess what? God's there. He lives there. You go down to earth to get away from God, or you think you can end your life to get away from God's presence, you will be sadly mistaken. You will see God's presence in the grave as well. He is everywhere. He is everywhere. So for the righteous, Jesus calls Sheol of paradise as they wait for him. For the unrighteous, Sheol is often referred to as, as hell. Jesus calls it Gehenna, the land of, of fire and suffering, but they're both Sheol. Jesus goes to that place. He goes down to the grave. That's what Paul means in verse 9 when it says he goes down to the lowest parts of the earth. He keeps going down. In Sheol, the righteous dead are there. So Abraham, Isaac, Naomi, Ruth, Rahab, they're all there waiting for their savior. The unrighteous dead are also in Sheol, but that's not all that's in Sheol. Also, is in she also in Sheol are demons who are held in custody by God. Demons who rebelled during the days of Noah. This is described in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
where Peter's following the same kind of trajectory here. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's that exchange. Jesus was righteous. He dies in our place. We're unrighteous. So that he can bring us to God. Now notice this phrase. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So this is talking, you know, on Saturday after his death, he's put to death in the flesh. His body has died. His spirit is still alive. And that's true for all of us. When you die in this world, your body dies. Your spirit remains alive. So his body is dead, goes in the grave. His spirit, it says, he goes and proclaims to other spirits in prison. Huh? (laughs) What spirits in prison? Well, it says these are spirits that formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which is only a few, that's eight persons, were brought safely through water. If you remember back in Genesis 6, we won't go there this morning, but in Genesis 6, there were demons that came and cohabitated with people. God destroyed the earth, flooded the earth and took those demons and put them into custody. Not all demons are in angel jail. Not all demons are held there. Some demons still roam the earth and afflict people and torment people even to this day. But there are other demons that are held in angel jail until God will take them and throw them into the lake of fire that's described at the end of the book of Revelation. So that's their future. So in Sheol, righteous dead, unrighteous dead, Angels or demons that rebelled against God during the days of Noah, they're all there. And this is where Jesus goes when he dies. This is a very important part of the Easter story to understand that after he died on the cross, his body to the grave, his soul down. It goes down into the grave. Now, I know some people haven't thought about this before. It's part of the Apostles' Creed that uh, Jesus descended into hell is the way the Apostles' Creed renders it. This is an important part of the Christian faith. And I hope that if you haven't heard this before, you hear it this morning and you see it in Ephesians 9 and you believe it. Psalm 22 verse 29 says, All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship, but they will all bow down and go into Sheol, even the one who could not keep himself alive. We all die and we all go there. And that gives us hope for the resurrection because Jesus went there and guess what? He came out. (laughs) Paul says this in Acts 2 verse 27. He says, You will not leave the Savior in Sheol. You will not abandon the Holy One to corruption. Peter declares that in Acts 2 verse 27. Romans 10, verse 7, Paul asks it rhetorically. He says, who descended into Sheol to bring Jesus up from the dead? It's Romans 10, verse 7. Who went to Sheol to get to Jesus up from the dead? Did you? Did I? Did an angel? No. Nobody can go bring somebody back from the dead. Obviously, the Holy Spirit, God himself, brought Jesus back to life. He resurrected from Sheol. He came into the grave. And the point here is that he conquered the grave. It's another way of saying that you can't escape the lordship even by, of Christ even by dying because you go to a place where he is Lord. So the question is, what is Jesus doing in Sheol when he dies? Well, three groups of people, let's say he's doing three things. First, he's liberating those souls that are waiting for them. The souls of the righteous who are waiting for their redeemer, he liberates them and sends them up to heaven. Second, the souls of the the damned, he proclaims victory to them. He demonstrates that he is the Lord. They will bow their knee to him. Every knee on heaven and earth and under the earth will bow to Jesus as Lord. That happened for those that are already in the grave. And then thirdly, to the demons, he's proclaiming victory over the devil to them. He's announcing, that's what Peter said. He's announcing victory to them. The the demons back to the devil's play. The demons thought the devil could outmuscle Christ and end the lordship of Christ and the devil could take control of the earth. And guess what? They were wrong. They were wrong. And Jesus announces that to them down in their own house. And you think, why would Jesus go all the way to Sheol to 
you know, is he bragging to the demons? Well, it's not bragging. He's announcing. And I grant that there's a little bit of a, you know, arbitrary nature between bragging and announcing. <laughs> I remember a while ago during, you know, 20 years ago now or whenever, uh, the Iraq war, we invaded Iraq and Saddam Hussein fled out into the, wherever he fled into his hole. And while he was fleeing, remember, he was still releasing press releases and videos that declared that he was in control and the U.S. was going to, you know, perish and they would never be able to occupy Iraq and he was still the rightful ruler of Iraq. And that was going on for a long period of time until the U.S. released pictures of, do you remember this? Soldiers swimming in his pool. Different soldiers sitting in his chairs. He had a big throne in his palace. We had pictures of our soldiers sitting in his throne. There was one picture I remember very vividly of this private from North Carolina who went into Saddam's house, found one of Saddam's servants, and his servant gave him a pedicure in Saddam's bedroom on his bed. Perhaps you remember this picture. I mean, that is demoralizing, (laughs) If you're thinking that your guy is still in charge and he's still going to win, and then you see pictures of the opposing army swimming in his pool and filing their nails on his bed, it's over. (laughs) Jesus goes down to Sheol and announces his victory over the grave right in their house. Proclaims the demons The devil holds people captive by the fear of death. Jesus goes to death itself and announces that he wins. This is humiliating them. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2. Look at this verse on the screen. Colossians 2 verse 14. Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. So the same track here. You stand guilty before God. Jesus will cancel your debt by nailing it to the cross. He sets it aside, takes it from you, nails it to the cross. Jesus pays for it with his own death. In so doing, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He humiliates them through defeating death itself. Death holds its victims captive and Jesus thoroughly humiliates death by freeing death's victims and sending those righteous souls up to heaven, having the unrighteous souls bow their knees before him and proclaiming his victory to even the demons himself. That is the lowest of the low. Do you see that he went from the highest of heights to the lowest of lows? Jesus did not merely descend to the earth where we all live. He went to the very bottom of Sheol itself. So in other words, he has now traversed every square inch of cosmology. The highest of highs to the lowest of lows, Jesus has passed through them all, which leads to his third segment of this round trip journey from heaven to earth, from earth to under the earth. Thirdly, he returned to earth for his body. So I told you the righteous souls, he sets them free and sends them up to heaven. He does not go with them immediately. He stops off in earth on the way. He, he, has, he has a bit of a layover. They have a nonstop flight from Sheol to paradise up to heaven. Jesus stops over on the earth to fetch his body. He left his body here. He comes back to the grave. He re-energizes his body, his actual physical body that he was in earlier, that died on the cross, was put in the grave. Soul goes down. He goes back to his body. That's the first part of the ascent. He re-energizes his body. He's been dead for three days. Certainly there'd been some kind of decay that had been going on in his body. No big deal. He re-energizes it, puts it back together again, blasts the grave door open, goes out and proclaims victory, walks around the earth for 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God. I mean, that's what he spent his time doing. Resurrected. This is a real physical resurrection. 
And this, by the way, is the kind of resurrection that you will have also. The righteous who were in Sheol, they went up to heaven without their bodies. They remain in heaven right now. Their righteous souls are in heaven right now. When you die now, if you die in faith, you will go to heaven as well. And you will join Jesus. Your soul will join Jesus and the souls of the righteous in the Old Testament. You will all be with Jesus in heaven. So you're not going down when you die. You're going up when you die with Jesus. You'll all be in heaven. If you have faith in him, you'll all be in heaven. And then you will come back and get your bodies later. That's a future trip for you. Jesus will bring your souls back and resurrect your body. And then you will have a resurrected body like him. That's what is waiting in your future. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever comes to me shall live even if he dies. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 14. He who raised Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. We await a physical resurrected body as well. And so here's your future. You're leading your life. If the Lord doesn't come back before you die, you will die and you will be buried likely or who knows what happens to your body and your body will decompose and it will turn into dirt and plants will grow up out of the dirt and sheep will eat those plants and then other people will eat those sheep. (laughs) And you will be in somebody else's body. That's your future. I just want you to know that now so there's no illusions about this. (laughs) And then Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to reconstitute your body. He's going to summon up all those molecules from wherever they are. If they're washed into the ocean and fled away, if they grew up into 20 other people could have parts of you in them by the time he comes back. He will, that's not going to be the hard part of the resurrection. He will sort all that out. (laughs) If he can create the world out of nothing, he can reconstitute human bodies just fine. Thank you very much. He will put all the pieces back together again. Some people get worried about that. But as the kids these days say, it's it's NBD. Jesus will sort it out. (laughs) He will put your bodies back together and you will resurrect at that point with him. This is the incredible part about Jesus' resurrection. He becomes the model for us. He gets it first. He is the firstborn of the dead. He's the first to have his resurrection body. But he really did. This is not a metaphorical resurrection, by the way, that Paul's talking about here. Because you're not going to have a metaphorical death. You're actually going to have a real death. So metaphorical resurrection is not going to do you any good, huh? You need an actual resurrected savior to be actual hope for you. And of course, Jesus is. He gets his body and then he finishes off his journey with the fourth stop going all the way up to glory, all the way up to the ascension where he goes from now earth to the sky, back to where he started. Ascension is a key part of worship. Even in the Old Testament, the Jews would go up to Jerusalem to worship. Part of that is, you know, topography of the place that Israel, Jerusalem is higher than the Sea of Galilee or the Mediterranean Sea. So you walk up to get to Jerusalem, but then you even walk up the steps to get to the temple. You're going up, 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 up. That's the idea. And we look to worship God. We look to God who reigns above, God who is in heaven. Our worship goes up. There's those steps down at the base of the Lincoln uh, Memorial, not the ones that face the Capitol building, but the backside. There's a road there now, and then it goes down to the water. Those steps were built, I'm told, uh, originally so that foreign diplomats or dignitaries or heads of state that came to visit D.C. would go up to the water and they would stop at the steps there and they would, their introduction to D.C. would be getting off their boat and they'd have to walk up this very intimidating flight of steps. Now it's mostly homeless people. Back, back then, this was intimidating. You'd walk up the flight of steps and you'd crest the top and there's the Lincoln Memorial, like Lincoln looking right into your soul. <laughs> and you have to walk around that to get over to the White House. It was designed to be intimidating. 
In a sense, this is what our worship is like. It is called to go up, up, up. It's a constant reminder that God is above us and that God is our judge. That's where Jesus goes. And he reorients death now around himself. Old Testament saints died and went down. Now when you die, you don't go down, you go up because Jesus has reoriented even death around himself. Believers will go up and be with the Lord forever. Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 was Jesus' ascension. And remember, all the disciples were there. Jesus taught them for 40 days. So they'd grown accustomed to having a resurrected Savior walking around. And then he goes up to the clouds. And the people were gobsmacked. Remember, their jaws are down, their eyes are open, and they're just stunned. And the angels come and rebuke them. Do you remember this? Acts 1, like verse 10, the angels say, what are you doing? Go do something productive. They sound like a parent right there. Go do something productive. You men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus who is taken up from you to heaven, he will come back in the same way you saw him go. So we will live our life and Jesus will come back and get us and transform us into our resurrection body if we're alive when this happens or we will die, we will be buried. He will come back, resurrect our bodies. Our soul and our body will meet and we will forever be with the Lord. That is the future. And that is the round trip. Notice the phrase this ends with. He ascended far above, verse 10 says, all the heavens. So he went to the lowest of lows and now he's the highest of highs so that he might, it says, fill all things. And what that means is that all things have their significance as they relate back to him. You don't rightly understand something unless you understand how Jesus fills it. How does it relate back to Jesus? How does death relate to Christ? How does life relate to Christ? How does burial relate to Christ? How does resurrection relate to Christ? How do all things relate to Christ? And then you understand how he fills all things. And he can do that because he has gone round trip. He started at the top, he went to the bottom, and he has returned right back to glory again, where he remains right now as the God-man. His resurrected body is in heaven right now. He's not a spirit in heaven. He is the God-man. His resurrected body is there at the right hand of the Father. He is making intercession for us, praying for us, beseeching us, being sovereign over the universe. That's what he is doing right now. And that's what he will remain doing until he comes and gets us. I want you to turn just a few pages over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Turn right like three, four pages if you're in the Pew Bible. Just go right a few pages. The next book is Philippians. If you're on your screen, just tap the little arrow three or four times and you'll be in Philippians 2. Look down at verse 8. Jesus was found in human form. I love the way Paul says that. He was the quality with God, all the glories of God, and yet he was found in human form. I mean, nobody did this to him. I love how Paul brings that point out. Nobody did this to him. He was found in human form. He took this upon himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So he descended to the earth to the most humiliating of deaths, Taking our sin, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and then this phrase, and under the earth. By thoroughly conquering every realm, he is the Lord of every realm, and the knees in every realm will all bend before him. And then, verse 11, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we go back to how we started this morning and what will you be accountable for when you die? You will die and you'll stand before God and you will have to answer for your sin. And it is worth you spending a few seconds thinking of your answer now. Because if your answer is like, God, normally I'm a good person. 
I tried hard. I did the best I could. Do you understand that is an insufficient answer? I mean, try that just for like a, a lame speeding ticket, okay? You get pulled over for speeding or for texting or whatever like a minimal traffic violation is and the officer comes to your window and your response cannot possibly be, officer, I want you to know there's been a lot of periods of my life where I was not speeding. <laughs> you know, I was in the car for an hour today and I only spent maybe five of those minutes texting. I mean, that is... It's a silly response. And I'm glad you laughed because it is silly. It wouldn't get you out of a traffic ticket. And yet often people think that that is an appropriate response to God. That when they die and they stand before God for judgment, that will be an acceptable response. That a lot of my life was not in fact spent sinning. Much of it was quite good. Thank you very much. And it's not an acceptable response. What is an acceptable response is that your sin has been taken from you and given to Christ who died for your sins. That he died just like the Bible says. That he was buried just like the Bible says. That he resurrected just like the Bible says. And now he is in heaven praying for you right now just like the Bible says. He was the perfect man. He had the perfect death because it pays for our sins. He defeated death forever and now he lives forever. This is the plan of God for salvation. The Father and the Son and the Spirit planned it. The prophets prophesied it. The disciples doubted it. The soldiers denied it. The empty tomb proved it. And the angels proclaimed it. Jesus is risen and there is no way to go to heaven when you die except through faith in that resurrection. Lord, we're grateful that you have given us a savior who is crucified and resurrected. And I pray today for anyone who is here perhaps as a visitor or a guest or as a family member that has never believed the gospel before, I pray today you would humble them. And I don't say that lightly. It is a supernatural work in a person's heart to humble them and help them see that they are a sinner. And I pray right now that as your spirit is working on hearts, that people would be aware of their sin and they would be aware that they deserve judgment for their sin. And I pray that you would give them faith, that they would be thankful for you, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, who paid the penalty for our sins, who took our sins, my sins, written out, nailed them to the cross, canceled them out. You fully paid the penalty that I deserve. I pray that others would have that realization even right now, that as they contemplate their own sin, their own standing before you, they would find confidence in the fact that you have paid for their sin there are those here this morning that have never believed that before. I pray this morning as they humble themselves, they would believe that. They would place their faith in your death and resurrection. And this would be the Easter where they come to faith in you. Something only you can do, Lord. And so I beg your spirit to work in people's hearts this morning. In the name of Christ, amen. And now for a parting word from Pastor Jesse Johnson. Thanks for joining us today. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to meet you personally at Emmanuel Bible Church. Our service times and other church information is on our website at ibc.church. If you want information about the Master's Seminary and their Washington, D.C. location, go to tms.edu. I hope this resource has been an encouragement to you, and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. May the Lord bless you. Thank you.